All right, so we'll get started here. This is March 3rd. It's our very first episode of The Vegetable Beat, a weekly live roundtable discussion during the growing season where we talk to vegetable growers across the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a group of extension educators and researchers from across the region. We broadcast live on Zoom every Wednesday at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, starting today, the first week of March, and we will broadcast through uh, the end of September. So we interview farmers, researchers, and others about topics that are relevant to vegetable growers. So I'm your host for this week, Natalie Hoydel. I'm from the University of Minnesota Extension. In the background, we've got Mike Renke, who is kind of our Zoom wizard behind the scenes. And there are actually six hosts for this show. So we're going to be switching every week. Um, So you'll see me sometimes and you'll see some of my colleagues other times. And while our show mostly focuses on vegetables, COVID-19 is looming over the growing season. And so it's going to impact the way that we all do our work this year. So today we are talking with Amanda Byler, who is a family nurse practitioner working with migrant worker communities at the Great Lakes Bay Health Centers, and Annalisa Holtberg, a University of Minnesota Extension educator working with on-farm food safety. So if you tuned into our show last year, you might remember that our very first episode ever, this whole (laughs) program, was with these two. And so we thought it would be really cool to basically check in with them one year later and just hear what they've experienced, what they've learned, um, and kind of help us get in the mindset of preparing for COVID during the 2019, the 2021 growing season. So just a reminder to attendees, as we go through with um, the podcast, we're going to spend the first half hour uh, with some questions we've come up with ahead of time. And then we're going to spend the second half of the show answering your questions. So feel free to put questions into the Q&A box as we go. Um, and if anyone's joining over the phone, we will get to your questions at the end. So uh, let's jump into it. Uh, Amanda, why don't we start with you? Uh, can you give us just kind of an introduction of who you are and your work and some of your experiences this summer with working with COVID and farmers? Absolutely. Uh, It definitely transformed the program and the way that we did things this summer. We had started out, I had, uh, in April, I had done, I had had a bit of experience working with the COVID-19 testing team here in Michigan at our, with our company. And so I had some idea of what we were, and, and we had talked about how are we going to adapt our program, which is a mobile program, and we go out into the communities. How are we going to adapt this? We had several on the team who were either at high risk themselves or had family members who are at really high risk for COVID-19 uh, complications. So we kind of changed things, how we did it, the, uh, the, the approach, the personal protective equipment, and just did a more of a screening approach at the beginning of the year. And then about the middle of the year... Uh, of the, the season, I should say, about June or so, we got a call from one of the health departments there, that there had been an outbreak at one of the uh, farms, and they wondered if our team would come and do COVID testing for the farmer, um, because the only other option was basically bringing in the National Guard, uh, which wouldn't have been ideal. And um, because of some of the past experience that I had, we were able to adapt that and go in and start doing testing in that county. And then it very quickly became obvious that this was going to be not just a localized problem. And then within a month, I believe, or six weeks of that, it actually became mandated here in Michigan 
for uh, COVID testing, COVID test 19 testing became mandated for uh, migrant and seasonal agricultural workers. So that just became our complete focus basically for the remainder of the season. So it really absorbed the majority of what we did. And we ended up doing focusing a lot on COVID-19 testing and management rather than our typical um, healthcare things that we, that we usually do. So it definitely had a really big impact and, and kind of changed how we, how we did things. Right. Thanks. And actually just, can you give just kind of a really brief overview of like the, who you're working with and absolutely. Kind of what, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. So I work with a company called Great Lakes Bay Health Centers and it's a federally qualified health center. We have a number of different sites throughout the state of Michigan, but the, uh, my primary draw is the, the migrant and seasonal uh, agricultural worker program which we have run during the summer and it's a mobile program and we go from farm to farm uh, or from grower to grower and provide health care to the migrant or seasonal agricultural workers. We have a mobile unit that we take with us. We have a mobile dental unit that usually goes out. They didn't go out last year. Um, so we're, we're prepared to be very mobile and to travel around the state. Right. Thanks. And so Annalisa, you were engaging with COVID and farmers in Kind of a different context. So do you want to just give an introduction to yourself and your work and what that looked like over the course of the last year? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, Annalisa Holtberg, University of Minnesota Extension. I work statewide uh, in Minnesota with fruit and vegetable farmers on on-farm food safety, good agricultural practices, and um, the prevention of foodborne illnesses. Um, so this past year, of course, COVID kind of took over and the work quickly shifted, uh, not exclusively, I certainly still did um, GAPS trainings. The FISMA produce safety rule is still a law. <laughs> and so we still continued to do our produce safety rule trainings. But um, a large portion of the work really did shift to helping growers in, a, in agricultural settings. So in Minnesota, that tends to skew on the smaller side really diverse operations, a lot of organically certified or at least practicing sustainable practices, farms um, diversified with livestock operations. So helping all of them, uh, and, but then definitely some larger kind of wholesale, fewer commodities, larger volumes growers as well, um, helping all of them understand how to manage COVID risks. So I really kind of started out just doing the thing that I've always done with produce safety, which is just kind of starting with the risks. It's all based on the risks. So what are the risks? And in COVID, we know it's it's person to person. It's those respiratory droplets. It's, it's a, a human transfer disease primarily. It's not as much through surfaces and it's certainly not as much through the vegetables themselves. So really trying to focus. Um, and I did a lot of webinars with people, did a lot of just kind of outreach, did my best to try to get that information into the hands of folks. And then over the summer, it really became um, complying with the guidelines. So then the state came out in Minnesota and of course in other states this happened too, came out with guidelines um, limiting the number of people on site 
for example, limiting, um, especially in indoor, in, there's specific regulations about if uh, there's consumption in an indoor venue. So someone might be, have an apple orchard, but also have a, you know, an area inside where they're eating donuts and things. So different, regula- not regulations, but guidelines come into place. And so really kind of sorting that all out. And that was, um, you know, I, I didn't, it was interesting. I didn't feel like the absolute expert in the room on all the guidelines because I'm not a regulator. At the same time, it's not um, that different than in some ways the FISMA product safety rule. It's just, so really helping them understand those guidelines. Um, and then this come, and then transitioning to this coming year, my goal right now is really just understanding what um, went well and what didn't last year and how that can guide growers practices for the 2021 season. All right. Thanks. Um, so let's go back to Amanda. Um, I realized that as a healthcare worker, you need to be pretty careful about like, patient privacy and everything, but just kind of on the maybe 10,000 or 5,000 foot level. Um, I'm really curious. So you visited a lot of different farms um, mm-hmm. over the summer and mm-hmm. some of them had like worse outbreaks than others. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if there are sort of like broad practices or trends that were maybe different between the farms that were able to manage outbreaks or prevent outbreaks and those that had bigger problems? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a, the hardest, hardest thing I would say was prevention. Um, Like Annalisa was mentioning, it's person to person. And it's almost impossible. I mean, it's impossible to eliminate person-to-person contact. There were definitely some characteristics that we saw that were that leaned towards the better side, and there were definitely some characteristics that were very harmful. Um, the I can start with like the harmful, like don't do this, and that was that was trying to um, that was trying to cover the fact that there was an outbreak happening, and uh, not letting not seeking any assistance, not bringing anyone in, trying to, to just kind of keep it quiet. And, and that exploded. And the, the couple of bad situations that I know that happened with farms that tended to be the situation where the farmers didn't look for help, the grower operators didn't, uh, they tried to keep that quiet rather than looking for assistance. And that ended up just kind of explode, imploding and not being it. So that is definitely not the thing to do. Um, the benefit there, the, the things that I saw that were beneficial is looking for help, looking for assistance. Um, a farmer saying, you know, I think we may have an outbreak going on here. Can we get, can we get started with some resources? Are there resources? Can we do testing? And then the, the open communication, like between the farmer and the, and the employees, between the employees in the healthcare system, between the farmer and, and Leo, between just that, that openness of communication really promoted that allowed us as healthcare workers to get in, provide some good education for people because there's so many misconceptions and that's true anywhere. But a lot of the, a lot of my patients that would be, they're coming in from as H2A workers, potentially from another country, or they have family who lives overseas and the information you add in information that's coming in from overseas to social media. And there's just so many misconceptions. And, and so that, um, openness of communication and, and having being able to answer those questions that perhaps the grower operator has, perhaps the, the employee has, um, 
finding resources within the, I, I made note to talk about it a little bit later, but, but finding resources even within like the public health department, um, those were really very helpful in, in management. And then in prevention, I think the making clear expectations and not just, um, not just expect, but, but living them out. And so the, the places that we had the most success, we would often have the growers, the growers would come in and be a part of the testing, or they would come in and participate. So it became very apparent that they are following the guidelines, that they think that this is something that, ne- that is serious and needs to be you know, dealt with and managed seriously, but, but done in such a way that it's not threatening to anybody. Because that that threat and that fear introduces just a, a, a component that that doesn't lead to logical or, or rational thinking. So, Annalisa, in some of the conversations we had leading up to this, I think a lot of what Amanda just said kind of rings true with your experience. Um, so, I guess can you introduce kind of the focus group process that you did, and then since most of what Amanda was talking about was kind of, you know, within farm teams, can you talk about some of the things that you learned about communication within farm teams and what went well? Yeah. Yep. So in December, 2020, uh, University of Minnesota Extension. So a a small team of us, myself, Natalie here, um, Annie Claude uh, hired a a woman named Cynthia Mathias, and she's an evaluator. And we hosted three focus groups with fruit and vegetable farmers in Minnesota to really just hear their um, input on how the 2020 season went in terms of COVID. What did they learn about risk management on their own farm? Um, what tools did they use? Did they use the template that we developed? Do they want other templates? Do they want webinars? Um, and then what else can we learn about other kind of risk management in terms of food safety, um, worker health. I mean, the things that the the kind of tools and strategies folks are learning um, and using in COVID have kind of a lot of similarities for other kind of risk management on the farm. So we just had these hour and a half long discussions. There was 23 people total, and then they filled out surveys. And we learned a a lot. It was super interesting. People were really open. So in terms of crew management, um, some of the people, everybody had, most people had at least some employees and crews. Some people then had customers. But so we definitely talked a lot about kind of your crew management, your employees, your workers, and that includes volunteers as well. Basically, anybody who's working for you, you know, being paid or not, it might just be family. um, But communication came up over and over. So as you're hiring, and this is hiring season right now, have a really honest discussion about what your COVID protocols are. And first of all, have a COVID preparedness plan. Even if it's really short, have your your strat- your, um, your protocols in place. This is what we, this is how we do COVID management on this farm. What are your guidelines? And let the new employee know that. And then that is the time if they're not comfortable with that, if it's either too loose or too stringent for them, then they'll then they then at least it comes out early, right? As opposed to in August or something. Um, and if you have a kid, if you're an employer and you have a kid come that's in school, for example, or your spouse is a healthcare worker, they might be considered kind of a higher risk person coming in. Your worker needs to know that, and then they get to make their decision if they want to work on your farm based on that. So. 
that um, that really just honest communication because we're all adults and we certainly can't monitor what people are doing in their off time. And this came up a few times in terms of legal boundaries. We literally cannot legally, I understand, tell people what to do when they're not working for us. And you can't say you can't go visit your grandma on an airplane. Um, And if someone does go visit their grandma on an airplane, I don't think that you can say now you have to stay home for two weeks and do that unpaid. Farm Commons, the organization, has a lot of more legal guidance on that. But um, that came up as kind of a, a tension there. But in general, it all becomes... Um, kind of moot if you have really open communication, because then there's no lying or anything about that. So the other thing is just really increasing that buy-in, like Amanda said. So help having an employee to help develop the protocols, you know, and this is for food safety and really anything, whatever those protocols are, um, having someone give their feedback as to what they should be from the beginning is always going to lead to more success as opposed to just here's our rules and you have to follow them. And then the whys, really focusing on this is our farm. We believe in producing healthy food and part of that is us being healthy. If someone was to get sick on the farm, it could make us all have to stop working for a long time, which would not be good for the farm's finances and therefore your paycheck. So like we're all in this together, I think really resonated. Um, And some people even said having like those one-on-one meetings so people are really comfortable because issues will arise. You will have protocols. Someone won't follow them. Someone will be frustrated by them. Stuff comes up, right? So like have one-on-one meetings as possible during the um, summer to just say, how's it going? Do you, how do you feel about our protocols for cleaning and sanitizing for social distancing in the field for mask wearing? Are, Are they spot on or do they need to be changed? Amanda, you're nodding a lot. (laughs) <laughs> if there's anything you want to like respond to or follow up with. I'm curious. So Amanda, you tend to be working with much larger farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you're not like necessarily involved in the day-to-day conversations or management, but I am kind of curious, and this could be for either of you, like I think it's really easy when you have a crew of five people to really kind of like involve everyone in the process mm-hmm. and have regular check-ins. And so I'm curious just if you don't have a response, that's fine. But if you do have thoughts about like when you're managing a much larger crew, um, if there are any practices that you saw that kind of fostered that same good communication, but just with a lot more people. I think the finding your leaders um, and sometimes that sometimes that's very apparent, like there's a crew leader. And if your crew leader is on board and you're on the same page with your crew leader, then there can be a, that, that communication can kind of trickle down. There's not always a crew leader. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's finding who is the natural leader. Somebody always emerges as having influence. And exactly like Annalisa was saying, making sure that you're influencing both in, the, in, in concordant directions. Because when you, when you have different ideas, then you can come in, you just come into a lot of friction and it can become, I mean, in a situation like this, it can become legal. It, and it has big consequences. Like, one of the, there are a few things that I've have been big takeaways for me from the whole pandemic. And one of them is the, the power of an individual's decision. Like this is a person to person transfer. That means there's, there's an individual that is making a decision that is either good or bad. And so it's important to make sure that we're all influencing kind of in the same direction. And if not, that becomes very frustrating and it's easy for it to become uh, finger pointing and blaming and then it's threatening and then there goes your communication. 
Yeah, really good points. Thank you. Um, so Annalisa, I'll come back to you. So that was kind of about crew dynamics, but you also talked a lot with farmers about interacting with customers and the public. And then you have whole new sets of dynamics. Um, so I'm curious what you learned from the folks who participated in focus groups about kind of best practices, things that they learned throughout the season. Yeah, so um, a number of the participants in our focus groups were pick your own orchards, berry farms, or and also those that sell at farmers markets. Sometimes a number of farmers markets. So in that, or CSA farms that have on-site pickup of the CSA um, shares or drop sites for their CSA. So all of those are times when you are interacting with the public on farm stores. Um, so again, the communication was really important. I will say that some of them, it was this uh, silver lining, so to speak, of really banner years for uh, pick your own orchards. People did a lot of business because people, the, the public was just hungry to get out, right? Indoor venues were closed and it's this idea that, well, it's an apple orchard. It's outside. It's spread out over 300 acres. It's, it's probably safe. Um, but our, you know, you, maybe people didn't think through, well, if there's 400 people there, uh, there's going to be a lot, there's going to be line lines for the bathroom. There's still going to be those, these kind of bottlenecks where there's a lot of people and that represents real risk, but the customers didn't always think that. And then, so the, the farm owners and workers probably more importantly were left kind of saying, but the state guideline says we can't have this many, we can't have more than 250 people if we're doing X, Y, Z. And also, regardless of state guidelines, this might not be safe. You're not maintaining social distancing. You're not wearing masks and having to be the police, so to speak. And that was an uncomfortable position. And um, not, it wasn't said a lot, but there was definitely a couple of people that said the customers were not nice at all. And that's unfortunate. Um, there was quite a few people who said the customers were nice though. And they really did appreciate that the farms were following the guidelines some of the guide, the farms that attended to come to the to this focus groups probably were the ones following the guidelines of course so they were saying a little bit of frustration of let's all follow the guidelines it will be easier if we all follow the guidelines then the customers will always know what to expect um, but in that vein communication so letting the customers know ahead of time via social media via website via signs I know that people don't always read those things but it's the best we have in some way to let them know when you come to our farm, here are the expectations. Someone said they even had like a screen where the customers had to click through to accept before they could come on site. So really, and I know we've all seen those, you know, warnings a million times and it might not even sink in yet, but I think especially for outdoor situations like that, people just assume low to no risk. And that, that's just not the case if people are, are congregating in an outdoor kind of semi-outdoor setting. Maybe you're in a, a tent, tented area. You still, if there's not good ventilation, you know, it's, it still could definitely be an issue. Um, so, uh, so they were really good about wearing masks. People said, um, you know, 80% of farms reported having people wear masks when they came onto the farm. And they said, except for those few exceptions, people were pretty good about that. Um, and then there was kind of the physical engineering of space, like putting the lines on um, the floor by the checkout at farmer's markets. People really are accepting two tables now. So there's a table in front of the table with the produce. So that prevents people from getting too close to you. 
um, money became a thing. So people really trying to move to a square reader where they're really not even touching their card. They're just holding out the square reader. The card goes in and out. There's no cash exchange. If they do have cash, people really were moving to having someone be designated for that cash to be that cash person. So that's probably always a good idea just because cash is pretty dirty, regardless of COVID. Again, the primary transmission route for COVID is not surfaces, but um, it, it probably is a really good idea, especially on those busy days when there's a lot of cash flow and having someone kind of designated to do cash when possible, someone else handles the produce. So those are the, some of the things that we heard about. All right. So in these last couple minutes here, I want to shift and talk about vaccines. Um, so a lot of people are starting to get vaccinated, but definitely not everybody yet. Um, and so I wanted to ask you both just if you have any insight about when farmers can expect to get access to vaccines, you know, it's different in every state, but I think more importantly, like even as folks are getting vaccinated, what kind of safety precautions do we still have to have in mind? Um, and how do we move forward as more and more people get vaccinated? And maybe Amanda, do you want to start? I could, yeah, I'll be, glad to, I'll be glad to start. I'll be glad to start. Yeah. Um, in it is, it does vary state to state. Here in Michigan, the the last few weeks, uh, agriculture workers were bumped up in priority, and so as of March first, they're actually within the priority guidelines now for receiving the vaccine. The issue is availability, um, but definitely in in our state, farm workers are at the place that they're they're considered they're in the. Um, they can sign up and could could get a vaccination. So I think there are some important things to understand about the vaccine that make it a little bit easier to understand why we can't just go back to normal. Um, one of them is that when you look at the details, so we, we hear the like 95%, it's 95% effective. That's actually the effectivity, the, the efficacy for preventing severe um, COVID, severe COVID-19, it is not necessarily the efficacy for preventing a COVID infection. It just prevents, so in just kind of a, a blunt summary, it keeps you out of the hospital, it keeps you out of the morgue. So it's kind of the, it's, it's kind of the, the way of getting the, keep from getting the really bad disease, but we, there seems to still be some amount of infection available. And as definitely, as long as you're around other people who are not vaccinated, that we continue to worry about the spread that, that spread continues to be there. And that's part of the talk about herd immunity, right? That the more people that become vaccinated, then hopefully we'll be able to see a decrease and not have to um, be concerned quite. So that's the reason for continuing to do the distancing, continuing to wear our masks and, and all of that is because just because you've had a vaccination and you yourself can't get sick, we're still not certain how, what are the, what are the chances of you passing it on to somebody else? So I understand, I've heard some groaning and frustration with like, you get vaccinated and we still have to do this, but it's a process. I mean, it's, it's a worldwide pandemic that's turned everything upside down and it, 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 we didn't get here overnight and we certainly won't get out of it overnight. There's, but it's, I, I have been vaccinated and I was surprised because I'm not usually an emotional person about that, but I got a little bit emotional. I'm like, we have an offensive weapon. Like I was, I was kind of excited. We've got where we've built this great defensive team. Like we know defense, what works. I was just really, it was really an exciting thing to me. Like, Hey, we've got something that we can, we can fight back a little bit. So um, 
definitely it's, and the other thing, we've heard a lot about how new it is and there's concern about um, side effects. And I've become more and more, at this point we're at millions of people who have been vaccinated and there have been millions of second doses and it seems to be safe. I did not feel well after my second vaccine. I got a, I, I was under the weather for a couple of days. It was worth every minute. It, I would I would take a bit of tummy upset and a headache for a couple of days. It, it was it was definitely worth it. All right, thanks for sharing that. Um, and maybe Annalisa, do you want to follow up? I think we've had some good conversations about kind of how our our mindset shifts as maybe vaccines come on. Yeah, come into the picture and just how we need to continue to kind of have like a community, a community mindset, I guess. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a pandemic fatigue is real. It's happening. I think we're seeing it in all sectors. Restaurants are filling up, you know, sporting events are starting up again. And I, I am, you know, generally pretty certain that this is also going to play out in agricultural settings. Employees might be less likely to um, say okay to wearing masks in the packing shed when you're packing CSA boxes. They might say, you know what, we can, why can't we fit three people in the cab of this truck riding back from the field? And um, one of us was vaccinated because of some reason, maybe that person was able to get vaccines already. Um, or, you know what, the the worst is over. And I think Amanda has said it so clearly that it's really not. And we have to stay vigilant um, until we reach that herd immunity. And I know that that's not always what people want to hear. But if you kind of frame it in this we we have this is like population level stuff we're not talking about the individual you might have a vaccine but that doesn't prevent you from ha- from getting it and spreading it to me and uh, that you you have to think about your colleague here it's bigger than you and think about the customers we serve think i mean it's a worker health just kind of like larger um community health thought. So, I mean, that would be a suggestion if employees start to push back and customers. So customers, I think if they start to push back, which if they did last year, I believe they definitely will this year. Um, I, I think part of our jobs as educators is to really give short, really short, but science-based and factual, like almost comebacks or reasons, you know what, we still wearing masks because um, even if you're vaccinated, you can still transmit the virus or um, my grandma's picking apples today too. So we really have to make sure we're all safe, you know, those kind of things and really just kind of keep on hammering it out there that we can't let up. You know, Dr. Fauci has said it'll be through 2022 that we're wearing masks. So that is the reality. And I I, maybe in localized settings, we might get to herd immunity earlier, but uh, I'm not counting on it. So um, I think I'll continue to just really help growers kind of have proactive plans to deal with employees and customers if they start to have those kind of sentiments of, oh, I'm so tired of this. We, <laughs> I don't want to do any of that this season because, you know, wearing a mask in 90 degree heat, um, not fun. Amanda, is there anything you want to follow up with or any last thoughts you wanted to share before we go into the audience Q&A? I, not particular. I think one of the, another takeaway point for me has been respect and learning to um, respect other people, even when we don't share opinions. And that gets very frustrating, but I have found that if you can, if you can be the one who initiates that respect, 
sometimes you'll see a bit more of a mirror um, that that will be mirrored back rather than just becoming very defensive, but respecting each other, respecting our jobs, respecting our opinions, and yet choosing to do what is the right thing. Right. Thank you so much. Um, so we're going to move to audience Q&A. Um, and I just want to thank you both. Um, I really, really appreciate you spending your Wednesday with us and the insight that you are bringing. Um, so for next week, Hope you tune in again. Uh, ben Phillips is going to be hosting for Michigan State, and he will be talking with a team of researchers from Purdue who have been studying transplant media. So we're shifting into more kind of vegetable-specific topics. They'll be talking about different transplant mixes, um, when, whether to fertilize transplants, all kinds of stuff about transplants. Uh, so same place, uh, glveg.net slash listen, and same time, 1230 Eastern, 1130 Central. And if you have any burning questions about transplants ahead of time, you're welcome to email those along with your phone number to greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. And this production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. So for live Q&A, um, if you have questions, please put them in that Q&A box at the bottom. You can upvote questions that you really want to hear answered, but we should be able to get to all of them. You can put uh, questions in the chat too, if that's easier. And if you are on the phone, you can raise your hand by pushing star nine. So we have one question here that we can start out with from Ben. Uh, so I assume this is for Amanda. The question is, have you seen examples of good ways to communicate about COVID when growers use an H2A contractor? Oh, yeah, that is that is one of those places that it's important that you're thinking that, that you have a mutual understanding of what is important. And that um, and I'm assuming this is coming from a, the grower standpoint. But I, yeah, it is important to make sure that the, the contractor understands they, they they're the leaders in that group. Um, there, there may be more, but they are definitely one of the top leaders in that group. And they have a lot of influence. And we saw that play out. We've seen it multiple times, but we definitely saw that this year where if the, the contractor is not 100% bought, it doesn't buy into the testing, it becomes very, very difficult um, to, to convince anyone else to get it. Nobody likes to be told what they have to do. Nobody likes that at all. But I think if there's an, if there's an understanding of this is why we're doing it. And it's important, not just like exactly like Annalise is, it's not just about me. This is about protecting other people. This is about protecting the community. This is about protecting the job. And so making sure that the contractor understands the importance and understands what the growers expectations are of the H2A workers or of the employees and making sure that they buy into that. Um, Otherwise, that, that does become an, an area of friction where there can be some, some tension some tension there. But I think I agree with Annalise in mentioning earlier, making sure right up front, this is what I expect. This even, even maybe writing it out if there's, and when issues come up, this is how we're going to deal with them. That's a good question, though. And it's, it's important to have that, that leader on board with you. And I'm curious, if, can you just explain that dynamic? Because we don't, since we have smaller farms, we don't work as much with contractors. Sure. <laughs> sure. So um, just, and I'll even take a little bit of a step back. The H-2A program is a temporary visa 
program that allows um, people from other countries to come to the United States to work on a temporary work visa. And it's typically tied with a particular person or farmer. And a lot of times in order to have those connections with a different country, a farmer will actually hire a contractor to look for the H-2A applicants and to bring them to the United States. So they help with the transportation, they help with the visa applications, they help the farmer with the farmer's applicants. So there can be a, it's a, it's a bit of a middleman, but it works really nicely because they have the connections in a country of origin that perhaps the, the farmer would never have themselves and can have a, a, a pool of resources that are available to them that the farmer wouldn't have. So it provides an ease for, for finding and bringing H-2A workers into the U.S. Thanks for that explanation. So it looks like we don't have any questions right now. If you can think of any other questions that you want to ask Amanda or Annalisa, um, keep it open for a couple minutes. Feel free to add those to the chat. I'm curious if either of you have questions for each other. <laughs> I don't know if I have questions. I was thinking back, though, to last year, and oh, we were so innocent. <laughs> there was so much that we didn't know. And I remember, I remember actually, Annalisa, when we were we were talking about um, basically fomite transmission, right? Like how, like what is the possibility that someone could catch COVID nineteen from vegetables or from fruits? And I mean, we didn't, we just didn't know, right? Like we don't, we don't have that research and. I, I don't know that we would have thought that a year later we would still be dealing with it, but we, I think we have such a different perspective having done some, there's been a lot more research. We've had a lot more um, experience with it. And it's kind of nice to be able to say, you don't have to bleach, you know, everything that you don't have to bleach this or that, or like, we know that this is not a likely way to, to pick it up. And so we've been some, in some ways we've been able to relax some of those things. It goes back to some of the basic kindergarten stuff, right? Like you don't sneeze or cough in your hand, you wash your hands, you don't go out if you're sick and you make wise choices. And so I, I, I was just thinking back to a year ago and how we had some of those questions that we don't know the answers to. And then this year looking back, like, oh, we know the answer to that now. And there's there are other things that we don't know, right? But I think it really helps to prioritize because one of the most mm -hmm. important things is helping people who are very busy running a farm, extremely yes. complex operation to prioritize. So we definitely heard stories of folks at the beginning spending a few hours a day cleaning and sanitizing surfaces, potentially mm -hmm. using really strong concentrations on mm -hmm. contact surfaces with actually off-label too. So, and then worker health issues with really strong concentrations, not good, not necessary. Basic cleaning and sanitizing is, yeah, it feels, I totally agree. It feels really good to be able to like conclusively let people kind of off the hook on that. Of course, um, if you, you know, maintain your cleaning and sanitizing like you would, you're, you're producing food. <laughs> you have to have good hygiene, um, but really focusing on keeping people apart. We definitely did hear that folks with a food safety plan um, and kind of a culture of safety on the farm said, I'm so glad that I already had a food safety plan and I had already worked with our crew on this. They felt they were kind of had a leg up instead of starting mm -hmm. from scratch. So they just kind of um, beefed up or maybe didn't even those sanitation practices, but then of course added the physical distancing, which, mm -hmm. you know, would not be a part of 
food safety. So adding that and adding mask wearing, of course, would not be a general area too, but not working when you're sick. I did forget to mention that was definitely an issue that came up multiple times. And that's kind of a policy implication of how can a grower afford, especially a small one, to allow people to not work when they're sick with symptoms of any illness? And so, you know, if you have a communicable illness, if you're, if you have jaundice or, you know, vomiting, you should not be handling someone else's vegetables. But if you got to skip a day of work, that is a tough sell. Or if you're the employer and you have to pay for a day's work that you don't then get that labor, that is a tough sell. So, you know, that came up multiple times saying we need more help to support our ability to do the right thing. Like we wanted, of course, you don't want a sick worker to come in. Like <laughs> that goes without saying, but help us do that. So that was, that's something that, that really came up. I definitely agree with that. That, that is, was consistently an issue. And that became, in talking about communication, like communicating your needs with everybody, because a lot of times there are resources that we, that, you may not immediately know the answer to, but when we involved DHS or when we involved Leo, then suddenly there was there was a um, there was some compensation that would be available for a sick worker, or there was compensation that would be available for a farmer. So, it, but we don't if we don't know that that's needed, or if DHS HS doesn't know that that's needed, then that that doesn't ever get communicated. But people were taking advantage of those programs. Did you feel that they were accessible and? Um easily applied for? So, no. <laughs> just really honestly, when I talk about communication, I'm not just, I'm not just picking on growers and employees. This is a, this is a system-wide issue. Like healthcare in general, we have difficulty communicating. DHHS in general has difficulty communicating. So it's not like it's just one, one place that there's a breakdown. It's important. This became one of the things that I learned about this is sometimes this health department is not, it's not easy to work with this health department, perhaps this health department is, but having a go-to person. So if I have a question about something that's with DHHS, I can go to this person and they may not be the right person, but they can point me in the right direction. Or if I have a question about for a grower, um, this this is a grower that I have a great relationship with and I can talk to this person and, and maybe find out more about that or perhaps the healthcare system in the area isn't the best, but do I have another healthcare resource that I could tap into? And I think having those, that helped a lot with when you run into a frustrating situation, having a go-to person in different areas it, vaguely a plan, right? But, but having being somebody that you can go to and ask a question. That's a good point is people are making their plans for the year to have that be a part of your plan. Like if this happens, here are resources so that in the moment you're not kind of having to scramble as much. Yeah. And I think it is on the state agencies extension and support organizations to really distill down those regulations because they were not made, you know, they, they did their best to kind of uh, suit them for an agricultural setting, but they were made, they had to make them for every industry. So, I mean, they were really general kind of by, they have to be. So they um, didn't always apply very well to agricultural settings. So I think we all have to be really proactive about distilling those things down and then having a contact person because sometimes it's absolutely the best thing is to have someone to call. And yeah. 
and, and finding out, you know, okay, so I'm going to serve food, but I also want to have a bunch of, you know, corn mazes. Like what are the regulations that come into place when I do X, Y, Z with my own specific scenario? Because every farm is so different. Like I think we have to invest in people knowing those re- regulations, but then also really understanding the risk. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, it's about like, what can I do to, to reduce those risks? So I totally agree with having that, that person that people can call. And just as a reminder to growers listening, like your extension people can, can maybe they might not have the answers, but they can be that person to help connect. Um, And so take some time now as you're making your plan to think through the things that you're still confused about and things that you still would like to better understand and definitely reach out anytime with those questions. Right. And we don't have any more questions in the Q&A box here. So I think we can probably wrap up for today. Um, thank you both again for joining us. It was really, really nice to talk to you, um, to learn from what you've learned over the past year. Thank you for the invitation. And thanks to everybody tuning in and listening and trying to get your plans together for this season. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And yeah, for those of you tuning in, hopefully you can join us next time. They'll be talking about different transplant mixes, um, when, whether to fertilize transplants, all kinds of stuff about transplants. 